All right. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the chance to get together to learn about you. Thank you for this community that you've built. Community of people who love you. uh, Who really want to follow you. I thank you as you continually expand it. I ask that uh, this would be a time where we would all encounter you. We would be encouraged to follow you. I ask, Lord, that uh, as I speak here, I would speak your words and nothing else. Uh, And if I speak anything that you didn't want me to, then I ask that you would stop up everybody's ears so that they would not be distracted by me and instead see you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I have the third section of James. I gotta learn to debug this. This looked really good in the original version. It's pretty good, but it doesn't totally fit. All right, so I've got the third section of James. James 1, 19 through 27. And I want to start, rather than diving straight into that passage, I want to start by reviewing the big picture about what we know about God and what he's up to uh, in the world here. Because James tends to be a real matter of fact and hard nose. This is how it is. You need to do this and this and this and this. And if you just listen to James out of context, you're going to have this tendency to think, oh, wow, I really need to work hard so I can get God's approval. But let's see the larger picture here so that we can put James in context. So we start as you always start, right? If you're at the village and you want to say, how do I approach something? You start in Genesis, right? Uh, You go all the way back to Genesis 2, Genesis 3. And Adam and Eve are created in the Garden of Eden. And they're in a state of moral perfection. They're in a state of moral purity. They're in perfect relationship with God. They're enjoying their relationship with God. The, what, one of the great passing references in the Bible is that after they've sinned, God comes looking for them as he normally does, walking in the cool of the evening. And the implication is that they like to hang out in the cool of the evening and walk together and enjoy the garden. And in this initial state, before sin comes into the mix, Adam and Eve are living into what they were supposed to be. But what they, what they are supposed to be is they're supposed to be servants. They're supposed to be workers for God. So they are there to tend the garden, and they're supposed to be in following uh, God's moral code, and they don't have a problem with that because that's literally what they were meant to do. They are fulfilling their nature. They're, filling, they're fulfilling what they were meant to be when they follow God. And so what the fall, what happens in the fall is that they begin to violate who they really are. See, the devil comes in and the devil says, you know, did God really say you shouldn't eat? And Eve misquotes what God said and Adam doesn't do anything to fix it. And then the devil comes and attacks the very nature of God. What does he do? He says a couple of things. First of all, he says that God's a liar. He says, God said that you're going to die, but it's not true. You're actually going to live. And the second thing he says is that the reason God lied to you is because he wants to hold you down. 
He wants to restrict you because God knows that if you eat of the fruit of the garden or the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him. And so the devil's lie right from the beginning is you aren't fully everything you ought to be. You need to be more. You ought to be more. And the way you get to be more is by violating God. But of course it's a lie, right? That when they sin, relationship is broken and they're driven out of the garden. And what actually happens is not fulfillment. What happens is curse. And so this is, the, uh, this is the story throughout the Old Testament. You watch what happens in the very first few chapters of Genesis. Adam and Eve, their sin was that they ate fruit they weren't supposed to. By the next generation, people are killing each other. But of course, Cain covered up his murder because he was ashamed of it. Seven generations later, the seventh in the line of Cain, he kills somebody and he brags about it. He says, hey, I killed somebody because he dissed me. Right? Now, in our culture, thankfully, we're not at the point where we think it's okay to kill someone because they disrespect us. But we do believe in power. We believe that we need to go express our power. We need to dominate someone else. I listen to a lot of sports radio, right? It's all through there right? You're not a good champion until you've crushed someone else. That is the devil's work through us and in us. So after Lamech comes and he finally, he he kills somebody and he brags about it, God says, okay, this is just not working. Uh, Genesis 6, it says, every inclination of man's heart was evil all the time. And so God says, okay, let's start over. We're going to wipe everything out. We're going to start over with with Noah and his wife. Adam and Eve didn't work so well, but we'll try again. And of course, Noah doesn't work out. And Samuel doesn't work out. Abraham and Moses and David and everybody in the whole Old Testament. God keeps approaching mankind from a whole different whole set of different perspectives and saying, what if we tried this? Would you be morally pure? And no one is. Now, remember, God knows everything, so he's not conducting experiments. What he's doing is con- he's conducting instruction, right? What the whole Old Testament about is, is not God discovering what's in mankind, it's God telling mankind about what's inside ourselves. And so by the end of the Old Testament, everyone who's a devout follower of God understands that this thing is not working. No one, no one in any particular circumstance, no one who's this great follower of God, no one lives up to the moral standard. And so the people who are devout followers know that God has to come in and fix it somehow. They don't quite understand theologically how that works yet, but there's an awareness that God's going to have to fix this. Now, there were also some people who were very self-righteous, and they thought they had it straight. But the devout people knew that that's not how it worked. They knew that they had this crisis that had to be fixed. 
And so Jesus comes and lives the sinless life that none of us have lived. No one before Jesus and no one after Jesus has ever lived perfectly. But Jesus did. I love the quote from our neighbor at, the, at our first apartment. He, a uh, recovering drug addict, and he said, he said, Jesus said no, because he knew that we were going to say yes. And I love that. I've been thinking about that for 15 years. That, that Jesus knows that we're fallen, that we are going to continue to sin, and he is going to live differently. So Jesus comes, he lives the perfect life, and he dies on the cross, and now says, okay, I didn't deserve to die, but I did. You deserve to die. But if you want, you can have my perfect life. And so that is how we get right with God. We never get right with God by doing the right things. We get right with God because Jesus did the right things. And so we accept what he offers. We accept the gift of the grace and the forgiveness that he offers. And so our response then is gratitude. See, as Christians, we have a responsibility. We have a duty to live according to God's law. But it's not because we win God's favor. It's in fact the exact opposite. We don't follow God's law so that we go to heaven. We go to heaven, therefore we follow God's law. That's what this is all about. That's the grand sweeping narrative of the whole Bible. So let's put James in that context. Eric said that James is a codex for servants. It's a set of rules for servants. So the way I like to think about this is I think about, imagine that there's an old English manor house and there's the Lord who owns it and who runs the place. And we've just been hired on as a gardener maybe. And we go there for our first day of work and we meet the old butler. And the butler is there. He's been around for about 40 years. He's regal and dignified and he wears his tux every single day. And he's, he just stands straight and he speaks to us and says, this is how this household runs. This is James talking to us. James is not the master. He's another servant. But James has a very clear picture that says, this is how servants act in the household of the Lord. And so James has a tendency to just lay it out and say, this is what you got to do. He doesn't offer a lot of softness. He doesn't allow a lot of flexibility. He just says, do this. And so the thing we need to remember is, yes, we have this absolute duty to follow God's law, to, to be good servants. But we do it out of gratitude, not because we're trying to win anything. So in that context, what have we seen? We've seen a couple of things from James. The very first thing that James tells us is that we need to be willing to persevere. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. For the, you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work for you to be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So point number one that the old butler tells us is you're going to suffer. 
You're going to lack things. Get used to it. Be prepared for it. But the outcome of this lack, the outcome of this suffering, is that you are going to develop perseverance, and that's going to develop maturity. In the end, you're not going to lack anything that matters. But in order to get there, you're going to suffer. You're going to, you're going to be under severe trials. And the second thing that he tells us is, he says, I want you to know the Master. And the Master is not even tempted by evil. Rod talked about his employer. He's, he said that some employers are really good, but even the best of them are still imperfect. They're still humans. And so an empl- every employer you've ever had, some of them are terrible, but even the good ones are not perfect towards you. But our master is not even tempted. It's, not, it's like it's not interesting to him to consider being bad to us. It just doesn't occur. And so what that means is we can trust. We can trust the Master because we know that He's always thinking of us and He always has our best interests in in mind. What that means is, going back to perseverance, if we're suffering, it's not an accident. It's not because He didn't take the time to think about us. It's not because He didn't care. It's not because He's getting pleasure from our suffering. It's because he's carefully considered us and considered all the people around us and said, here's the best way I can organize the whole world so that my children, my servants, develop perseverance, wisdom, and maturity. So, in that context, let's go take a look at the actual passage. If you're... Um, This is James 1, starting in verse 19 to the end of the chapter. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that so easily entangles, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So I went through this, and, I, and there's a whole bunch of commands. I came up with nine different commands in the space of three tiny little paragraphs. James is just like, do this, do this, do this, do this. There's a couple of references to the tongue which really struck me personally pretty deeply. Um, But I want to start with that phrase, the perfect law that gives freedom. I love that phrase. It's a wonderful phrase. You see, when we talk about law, 
we often think of law as imposition. Law is something that limits us. Law is something that comes in from the outside and it squeezes us down so that we can't be what we'd like to really be. But the reality of what this is saying is that law is actually how we live into what we were made to be. Great story. I was talking to somebody uh, last week after church, and they were telling me about their marriage. And they were telling me about the first several years of their marriage and how hard it was. They were talking about, you know, I was in this marriage and it was just painful. There's all this suffering that was going on. And they were raised in a, in a Christian household, so they were raised with this law that says you shouldn't divorce your spouse. And so they were living according to that law on the outside. They were staying with their spouse. But there was this internal process that was going on at the same time, which was, if it gets this bad, then I'll be excused. I can get out. And so this, this process is going on continually of like thinking about what it would like to be get out, to get out. Or thinking about, okay, what is the current standard? And, and they're drawn in two ways. They're a double-minded person, right? Earlier in James 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God for it who gives freely to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, for he who doubts is a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not expect that they receive anything from the Lord because they're a double-minded man, unstable in all they do. And so this person is drawn. They're, they're serving God at one level, and they're drawn away in another. I know what that's like. It's my, yeah. <laughs> Looking here at Emily. It's, it's been real. There's, there's been a lot of really hard stuff. And there's that, that thing that tears you apart inside because on the one hand, you're following God. And on the other hand, you're kind of wishing you didn't have to anymore. Now, there came a certain point in this person's life where they said, you know what? I'm not going to do this anymore. I am going to devote, devote myself to my marriage without condition, without escape clause. I am going to be here no matter what. And that's what God calls us to do, right? God calls us to be devoted to Him without exception. Marriage is a great example of it. He says, stay married. And by the way, I'm not talking about abusive situations. If, if you're in an abusive situation, you can physically leave, but it is possible to leave your heart there. It's possible in an abusive situation to say, I have to physically protect myself, but my heart is still engaged to you, and I'm going to wait for reconciliation. Because God tells me that I should not separate. See, this is the attitude of a servant. The attitude of a servant is, I am going to do what God tells me, no matter what it costs me, no matter how hard it is, no matter how long it takes. Now, what do we think of this? If we listen to what we hear 
from the culture, and frankly, what we often believe inside our own selves. We believe that those sorts of choices are foolish, right? You're limiting yourself. You're locking yourself down. You're repressing your real feelings. But what happened in reality here? This person told me, I made that decision, and what I experienced was peace. Peace, there's clarity, there's comfort. Because, go all the way back to the garden, we are made to be servants. We are made to serve. And when we serve God, we are living fully into the way we were made to be. When we serve without reservation, we are fulfilling ourselves. And so anyone who tells you, you need to violate God's law in order to be fulfilled, they're just dead wrong. So the perfect law, follow the perfect law, not because it gains you salvation, but because you are grateful for your salvation. And when you, fo- when you follow that perfect law, the outcome will be freedom. The perfect law that gives freedom. Now I want to step back to the previous paragraph. (laughs) This is me. This is me. What's that? (laughs) Yeah, my wife is the one uh, off screen trying to call me back to bed. What's that? It says, uh, are you coming to bed? I can't. This is important. What? Someone is wrong on the internet. (laughs) A couple of, or many years ago, actually, uh, I joined a mailing list that Rod pointed me to. And there was someone who posted on that mailing list when I was pretty, pretty new there. And they used a whole lot of Christian words and, you know, Christian theory to express an opinion which was absolutely unbiblical. And so I, you know, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, consider how you can spur each other on to love and good deeds. I I corrected them. And at the time, I was convinced that I did it with good motives. And in hindsight, I'm not so certain. But I thought, you know, this person, they sound like they want to follow Christ. They're wrong. I need to fix this. And so I posted a response. Now, how many of you think that what this person wrote back was, wow, Russ, you're entirely right. Thank you for fixing this. (laughs) Don't I wish. That's, of course, what I thought, right? I thought that I was going to be able to speak something and it was going to be life-changing for this other person. They were going to be all grateful. In fact, they weren't even really aware of what I said. What they did is they just went back and doubled down on what they said the first time and explained how what I said didn't even matter. And so I corrected them. and Because obviously, if it didn't work the first time, it's going to work the second time, Right? And I kept doing this. And we went round and round. And I got really frustrated and I stopped responding until the next thread when the the same person said something else that was wrong. And I went after it again. 
And it took quite a while here. I was starting to get frustrated because I was starting to learn practically that man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. There's a lot of practical wisdom here that says you think you can go fix people by saying just the right thing. And it just doesn't work most of the time. Especially at distance. But it happens as well in our marriages, right? Eight days ago, I'm preparing for this sermon, and what I'm really struck by is this passage that says, everyone should be slow to listen, or quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And as I'm preparing for this sermon, I have this terrible fight with my wife. Because there was something in her that I wanted to change. And to be perfectly honest, I don't remember exactly what it was. By the time, by the time we got like several hours into this, it was so long gone. Because she would say something and I'd respond. And then she'd respond to that. And we'd go back and forth and back and forth. And we're both angry. And we're both hurting each other. And we both keep speaking because we think if we say one more thing, it'll change everything. If we say one more thing, our spouse will say, Oh, right. You've been right all along. Thank you for correcting me. But it didn't work, did it? So there's, a, there's practical wisdom here. But there's also a theological truth here. Because when I think about how I am when I'm arguing with my wife, I'm not loving her. I'm focused on me and getting my life fixed and ordered the way I want it to be. When I post on the internet, I wasn't focused on loving that other person. To be perfectly honest, I hate them. And I'm, I still, like, I'm fighting to change that. But I think that's in present tense. I still feel that way towards that person. I'm not acting in love. I'm acting in anger. And so you know what God told me a long time ago on that list? He said, stop speaking. Stop responding to this person. Actually, that's not what he said. What he said first was, Russ, do you love this person? And I said, well, yes, I'm correcting them all the time. Can't you tell? And God said, no, really, do you love them? Would you weep if they suffered? And I realized I didn't really love them. And God, Then God said, stop speaking. I said, but God, I've got to fix this. This person is speaking publicly and advocating something that's just dead wrong. She's going to be leading people astray. And God said, be quiet. I said, I don't want to. I I want this to be fixed. And at that point, it stopped being about practical realities. It stopped being about whether I love that person. It became about, will I obey the Master? And the Master says, be quiet. Now, why was that hard for me? Well, it was hard for me for a couple of reasons. Number one, because I didn't like the situation. I wanted it changed. And he says, consider it pure joy when you endure trials of many kinds, for the testing of your faith develops perseverance. 
But then I had a nice religious second answer. I said, I need to speak up and be the voice of truth here. Otherwise, people will be led astray. And the master says, I've got this. I'm in control. I'm going to take care of this. You see, like, like Elijah, when he said to God, I'm the last of your prophets. Everyone's turned over to Baal. I'm the only one left. And God says, no, no, no. There's 7,000 left who have not sacrificed to Baal. I'm going to take care of this. And that's what God says to me. He says, you're, you're the middle of this very large community of people. People who actually do love that person that you have such trouble with. They've got people in, your, in their life that you know nothing about because they're not part of the mailing list. Not only that, most importantly, the Holy Spirit is speaking. When I demand that I speak in order to fix a person, whether it's a person on a mailing list or a person here in the community, my children, my wife, what I'm really saying is I'm the only one who might ever speak and so I need to take care of this. And the Master says the Holy Spirit is at work. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now that doesn't mean you never speak. But it does mean that when we speak, we need to speak in submission to the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit says speak, then you ought to speak. But the vast majority of the times that I open my mouth, I'm speaking out of my own power and my own initiative. And I'm not listening to the Holy Spirit lead me. So, I'll just leave it there. Feedback, pushback, questions. It's okay to speak. <laughs> yeah. No, I hear you. Well, I think... So So the statement is, James is pretty hard-nosed here about, you know, going back to those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongue. Their religion is worthless. Those are really hard words. But remember that James is in the context of the whole picture of grace. Okay? James says we ought to be in control of our tongues. But we are all aware that we're all failing all the time. That's not, that's not any one person. That's all of us all the time. And so one of the slides I actually deleted, but I'll try to recreate here, was the question of how do we change? And I connect 
how we change back to this idea that man's anger doesn't bring about the righteous life that God desires. You can't use your words to change somebody else. But very often what I believe is that if I turn my anger and my shame inward, I can fix myself by man's anger. And that doesn't work either. See, if we, if we are just trying to, trying to fix ourselves and we're ashamed when it's not happening, it's not going to work. I've tried it for a long, long time and it doesn't work. What in, it, what in the end happens is that God is the one who changes us. So if there's stuff that anybody here is struggling with, those are good things to pray about. They're good things to work hard on. But in the end, it's not going to be our hard work that changes ourselves. In the end, it's going to be the grace of God. The Get rid of the moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you. See, the word has been planted in you and God will bring it to fruition in His time. And so what that means is, I don't want you to feel frustrated. I don't want you to feel discouraged. What I want you to feel is desire. And let God work out the timing of how it all happens in your life. Other questions? Other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I I love Romans seven. That I I I love going back to Romans seven because it says I'm continually screwing up. And as Mike said, the the longer you walk with the Lord, the more clearly you will understand how much you're screwing up. Okay? You will get better, but your awareness of your distance between God and yourself will grow. But, in Romans 7, it also says, there's something essential inside me which loves the Lord and longs to follow Him. And I think that's the real me. This thing that does sin is the external stuff that's slowly sloughing off. And when I get to heaven, it'll be gone entirely. But right now I carry it around. But it's not the real me. So, um, let me close here. There are three different ways that you can uh, respond here. Didn't mean to go there. Come on. Can I go backwards? There we go. So three different ways you can respond. If you're a member of this community and you want to support it, we'll pass around the baskets somewhere. They're there. So if you can give. If you're not a member, if you're not, then please don't feel any pressure at all. 
This isn't about money. Uh, but an, uh, another way that you can respond is the healing chair back there. So the healing chair is a place where you can come and get prayer. You go there, you sit, somebody will notice. It might take a, a minute, but they'll notice. You can tell them something quick about what's going on. They'll pray for you, and then you all can connect after service and talk about it in more depth. It's a place to, to be prayed for. If you're feeling like you've got sin, or there's sin of other people, or just the world is screwed up and you're, you're buried under the weight of it. The last way that you can respond is communion. And we've got wine and juice for whatever preference you have. And communion is the way that you say, Christ, thank you for coming. I am aware of the fact that I needed you to save me. And I'm glad that you did. But I know the magnitude of the price you paid. The bread represents Christ's body and the the juice or the wine represents His blood. And it's our way of saying, I'm glad you did this for me. Thank you. So if you're a follower of Christ, we really encourage you to come and take it. If you're not a follower of Christ, then wait. All right, I'm going to pray and then we'll uh, have some music. Dear Lord, thank you very much for this chance to, to come in front of you to see you, to learn about what it means to be your servant, your follower. I ask that you would bless us all. I ask that you would bless us through the music and you bless us through communion and all the other ways. I ask that you would bless the relationships afterwards. I ask, Lord, that as we face the hard-nosed reality of what James tells us, I ask that we would feel both that desire to follow you and also the comfort that you saved us before we were uh, before we were yours. You saved us while we were still sinners. Bless us all in Jesus' name. Amen.